1.26. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Bible in front of you. It's on page number one. You can take that Bible with you if you don't have one at home. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. We're continuing in our series. As you turn there, I just want to thank uh, Noah for leading us this morning and Tori Carlos for uh, leading us in music this morning as Rob is away this weekend. Uh, Thank you guys so much for diving in and jumping in to help us out. We're continuing in our series on Genesis 1 through 11, the foundations, the true story of everything, such a huge, big picture to look at. And today we come to the second half of the sixth day. Last week we looked at an overview of the first six days of creation. And today we come to God's special creation in the second half of the sixth day. God creates mankind. So let's read this together. Genesis 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. A couple weeks ago, I went to the optometrist to get my uh, contact prescription uh, redone. And it's been several years since I went to the optometrist, I'll be honest. I'm not one of their better patients. I keep my contacts in way too long, uh, and I also order more than a year's worth, so I don't have to go back every year to get a new prescription. So it's been a few years, I'll fully admit that. I told the optometrist what my prescription was, the previous prescription, and um, you know, she was examining and I was answering you know, with the letters on the screen through the, uh, through the little owl uh, lenses. And uh, she double-checked my prescription, and she said, do you get headaches in the, in the evening? And I said, yes, I do, quite often. And she said, your prescription is too strong. Not the words I was expecting to hear. She says, you don't need that much power, this, these contacts that you've been using for the last three years. <laughs> So, confused, I asked her, you know, did my eyes get better, or was I perhaps misdiagnosed uh, the previous time? And she would not come out and say it straight away, but I could tell she thought that the previous doctor had misdiagnosed me. And so for three years, I've had too much power, I've been seeing too far, and it's actually put a strain on my brain. And so, so I have these new contacts in, and I'm, I'm walking around in the world, and it's been a couple of weeks. And still, though, it's been an interesting experience because 
uh, sometimes I'll, I'll forget that I have them in because I'm used to seeing better than I have seen these last couple of weeks. Uh, so it's been something to get used to. I'll feel like, hey, maybe I need to put my contacts in, but then I realize, no, I have them in already. I can see well enough. It's just that I don't see as far as I did, but I'm seeing exactly the way that I should see, and my headaches are less. I'm not designed to see as far as I was seeing. I mean, there's a reason why. There's a reason why our brains uh, function a certain way. There's a reason why we see as far as we do. We don't wear binoculars all the time. We don't walk around trying to see as far as we possibly can. There's a trade-off in sight between things that are close up and things that are far off. There's a trade-off also for how taxing it is on your brain. And so in a perfect world, what contact lenses would do is they would restore the true design, not seeing too far and not seeing too short, but bringing us back to the real design. As we look at the creation of mankind, God's pinnacle of his creation, we as human beings, there is a design that we are created for. It's his way. And we, when we come to this, have trouble sometimes being humble about who it is that God has made us to be. But the ancient and the biblical understanding of human beings are actually our true design. And what we're trying to do now as we study it is to restore ourselves back to its true design. What it means to be a human being. We live in a culture where we think we can see farther than God's Word. We think we can see farther. It used to be that we should work hard and then have a day of rest. But we can see better than that. We can organize our lives more efficiently than that. It used to be that uh, everybody recognized that there is male and female, but now we can see farther than that. We understand gender to be more fluid than it actually says in the Bible that it is. It used to be that you know, we thought there should be a day of rest, and now we can kind of more efficiently organize our lives, and so on. It seems that in our day, we're trying to see as far as we can, and we think that that represents advancement. But when we come back to God's Word about what human beings are and what we're designed to be, what we see is that we're just giving ourselves a headache in seeing too far. Because we're seeing things that we're not designed to be. What I want to do over these next uh, three weeks, I actually want to start a little mini-series within our bigger series on Genesis 1-11. through 11. And as we come up to Genesis chapter 3, which is the story of the fall of mankind or the rebellion against God, there's, still, there's a, a chapter and a half here, the second half of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 is about our humanity. I want to talk for these next three weeks about what it means to be human and the biblical understanding. And we're going to look today at what it means to be human is to represent God to the world. We have the image of God on us. We represent God. Representation is essential to our humanity. And then next week we're going to look at rhythms. The rhythms of work and rest and Sabbath. 
that God has given us. And then the third week, we will look at relationships that we're not made to be alone. We'll look at marriage and other relationships as what it means to be human. So today, representation. To be human means that we represent God to the world. We are made in the imago dei, the image of God. And one of the challenges that we uh, come across in our world is that um, oftentimes when we talk about humanity, we are encouraged to think of our humanity as something to be ashamed of. Contrasting that, the biblical story gives us honor and dignity and dominion that we're not used to asserting. And so we have to do a little bit of back work on this because we oftentimes find ourselves in maybe, maybe an environmental context where we're told that human beings are the ones who destroy creation, and so they do sometimes, obviously. Uh, that, we, that we are using up the world's resources, that we're overpopulating, that, um, that basically human beings are the enemy of the natural world is kind of the line of reasoning. Even human intelligence and ingenuity is something that we should be kind of ashamed of and de-emphasize. But contrasting that, Genesis 1, 26 and following tells us that our humanity, our ingenuity, our even presence on this earth is not shameful, it's beautiful, it's God's design. And even our dominance, our dominance in the food chain or in the world or however you want to think about it, our dominance is by design. Though, of course, that dominance must be stewarded according to God's word and according to the good of his creation. I want to look at three things today about our humanity, about how we represent God uh, to the world. So the image of God in us teaches us about our unique human value, identity, and callings. The image of God in us teaches us about our unique human value, our unique human identity, and our unique human callings. So first, it teaches us about our unique human value. Look at verse 26 with me, the first part. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then skipping down to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now you need to see that this is a unique creation moment. And it shows the value of humanity to God. There's several things that are unique about the creation of mankind. First is this divine dialogue. Let us make man. No other part of the creation is God speaking to himself or speaking to an audience, depending on what you think that let us means. Is it God speaking to himself? Is it speaking to the heavenly host? We don't really know, but there's this divine dialogue. There's this special moment. Let us make man. Let's do this thing. Let's make a special creation. And in verse 27, we have the first words of poetry in the Bible. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. These words line up in poetry. What is the purpose of poetry? Poetry is elevated speech for precision, for loftiness, for beauty. God thinks that our humanity is beautiful and lofty, and He gives it that 
poetic element from the very beginning. Other unique things, of course, are this. We're made in the image of God. No other creature is made in the image of God. Are we still made in the image of God? Or is that something in the next chapter in Genesis 3 when there's a rebellion? Do we lose the image of God that's placed in us? The answer to that is no. The Scripture reaffirms that we are made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9, where he says, um, if anyone sheds blood by man, his blood will be shed. For he was made in the image of God. Skipping all the way to the New Testament, James tells us that blessings and curses shouldn't come out of the same mouth. We shouldn't curse our brother because our brother is made in the image of God. So the image of God that we see here that's placed in us is not lost when we rebelled against God. It is marred. It is broken. It needs to be restored, but it is still there. This value that God has placed on us is important. And it actually solves things, some problems for us intellectually that we might have wondered about because most people believe in human value. If you say human lives are important, then most of us would agree. But if you're not a follower of Scripture, if you don't believe Genesis 1 is the truth of God's world, then why would you believe that humans are more valuable than other creatures? Why in particular would you find us more valuable than, say, the animals? And the truth is that many people have said, well, we aren't. In 1989, Peter Singer, um, who is a famous writer and an ethicist, I'll put that in scare quotes there, I don't believe him to be very ethical, but he wrote a, a paper called All Animals Are Equal. And but what he meant by that is, of course, we are a part of the animal kingdom, so human beings are the same as animals. Now, there's no reason intellectually that that would be false if you didn't believe the Scriptures. It would just be that we are the product of being at the top because we have the most ingenuity or the power or the brains to do it. But here in Genesis 1, we see that we have dignity by design, by God's design. And it is true that many studies have shown that, especially with online activity, many of us are more outraged over the death of animals than we are over the death of human beings. This comes up quite often. Now, animals have great value. Animals are amazing. Uh, the death of an animal is something to be grieved. Uh, you know, one of my favorite examples of that in Scripture is in, at the end of the book of Jonah. Have you ever read the book of Jonah and noticed how it ends? It ends with a question. And the question is, and also much cattle? The reason why, if you remember the story of Jonah, God, God saved the Ninevites, the city of Nineveh, who were in rebellion to him. And he sent Jonah, this reluctant prophet, to preach. And Jonah didn't want to go, so he went away for a while. But then he ends up going, and then he preaches a very reluctant sermon. And then all of Nineveh re re repents and turns to God, and God spares them, and Jonah is upset about it. And he goes and sulks because he didn't want God to save them. And God says, would you have me kill all these people? And also, the cattle? That's the way the, the book ends. The reason why, one of the reasons why God didn't want to destroy Nineveh is because there's much cattle there. Animals have great value. But 
Human beings are of greater value. And Jesus says this explicitly. Matthew chapter 6. Do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them, cares for them. And then He says, are you not of much more value than they? We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We have value. And this is why I believe the stories of C.S. Lewis are so magical to us. The Narnia series, it strikes us as wonderful and strange and a bit odd that the, the children, four children from Britain, would be the kings and queens of Narnia. If you know the story, there are four thrones in Care Paravel, four thrones awaiting the four kings and queens that turn out to be little bratty British kids. And that's just like so amazing to us. We think, you know, wow, you know, this story, this amazing story that has all these extraordinary elements in it. There's a, 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 a lion who's magical. There's a, a witch who is terrible and powerful. There is, uh, there's fawns and there's these magical creatures. And we think that's the amazing part and how amazing that human beings fit into that. But if you actually read the stories, you see that all of the creatures fear and reference, reverence the humans. They are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. God has placed us in this world of amazing things, and we can spend all, t- all the time just looking at the amazing creatures that He's put on this earth. But what's amazing more still is our place in God's creation. We are of great value to God. The greatest value. Let me ask you a hard question. I think we'll hit everyone. And I want to ask you to answer this question for yourself rather than for someone else. Because I think that is the temptation. Here's the question. What particular form of human life are you most likely to devalue? What form of human life are you most likely to devalue? Because the Scriptures say that we are of great value. This last year in particular, but before that as well, we've heard many stories of black men and women being killed? What do you think about their deaths as you read them? I'm not asking you what you think about our political climate. I'm not asking you what you think about media coverage. I'm not asking you what you think about what should or shouldn't be done to the police or in the police reform. I'm asking what you think about those lives. They are of great value to God, and it's a tragedy to see their blood spilled. When we think back to the first death, we're going to look at it in just a few weeks, Abel lying on the ground after Cain kills him. God says, His blood cries out to me from the ground. This valuable human being. Are we quick to say it's only political? It's only the left. It's only Marxism. And skip past those stories and not see that there's a human being there, dead. It cannot be only those things when we're talking about a human being. 
This pandemic has given us uh, some time to reflect on value of human life. Especially early on, many people would say somewhat callously, while this virus only affects old people and sick people. Just those people? Those who are made in the image of God? They are of great value. Sometimes our youth or our health can cause us to devalue human life. What do you think about abortion? You scroll past those stories, those posts, those statistics because it's been the law for 40 years. It'll never change. Are you so certain that it'll never change? And even if it doesn't, does it make it any less grievous? Where is it easiest for you to devalue human life? Because humans are of greatest value to God. Don't answer for someone else. Answer for yourself. Where is it easiest for you to move on by? To walk by as the priest did for the man lying on the side of the road? Every human being is of great value to God. We would not know that. If the Scriptures did not reveal it to us. We would only be defined by our, our dominance because of our brains or our power. But God says it's because we represent Him. We are His special creation. We're made in the image of God and we have human value. Secondly, we have human identity. We're told here in the book of Genesis that we have an essential identity. Much, much makes up a human identity, but here are the essentials. We are created in the likeness of God, male and female. We are created first. Verse 27 tells us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I said the first week in our study on Genesis that in the beginning, God created. The first action of Scripture is to create, and create is a unique word only used by God Himself. And here we have a threefold use God created, created, created. This is His special creation. Mankind, regardless of what you think about the age of the earth and the things that we talked about last week, did not emerge over time. Anything um, that is created is created and therefore has a responsibility to its maker. We believe that God created us, so we have a responsibility to Him. That's our essential identity. Our identity is not determined by, primarily by other factors. Other schools of thought on this topic, we are biologically determined Biological determinism. What does that mean? It means that we are, our particular identity is the makeup of our genes and of our chemistry. And that defines who we are. Or psychological determinism. That we're mostly a product of our experiences, our history, and other environmental factors. The big debate between those two. Are we mostly biological or are we mostly psychological? Is it our experiences, or is, is it our bodies that determines who we are? Now, 
Biology and psychology have a huge influence on our lives. There's no doubt about that. It should be every Christian's goal to understand their body and to understand their story, to understand how they are reacting to certain things because of family history, and all of those things are amazing things to dive into. But we have an identity that's previous to that. We are God's creation. The most basic thing that we can say about ourselves is not our biology or our psychology. It is that we are God's. We are His. We belong to Him. He made us and we are His. And therefore, we're responsible to Him before these other factors come into play that dictate who we are. First and foremost, we are belonging to Him. We are created. We are created like God. In His image, after His likeness, the Scripture says. What does it mean that we have the likeness of God? It means that we share in a God consciousness in this world. We share in some of His attributes. We have responsibility we have freedom we have wills we have affections we have personality we have compassion we have creativity we have cultivation many of the things that God shows himself to be in this Genesis story he desires us to be in this world we are in his likeness not everything of course there is a distinction between the creator and the creature we are not gods ourselves We are not omnipresent everywhere at once. We're not immutable. We change over time. God does not change. But the likeness of God also means that we have a spiritual understanding that goes beyond other parts of creation. No other creation, no other created thing understands the responsibility that we have to God in the same way. That consciousness, that spiritual consciousness towards Him. We are created in the likeness of God, male and female. It says that explicitly in verse 27. Male and female, He created them. This is the way it is from the beginning and the way that it is still. And this is one of those places where it's hard for us as Christians to speak into this cultural reality where we have a lot of confusion over gender. And whenever we have a tension like that, Christians need to be equipped to do a couple of different things in these moments, and both of them are extremely important. We must approach the gender confusion that we see in our world today with both compassion and clarity. Compassion. We have to face the reality that there are increasing numbers of people who experience a dysphoria, as it is called, in their gender. These are folks that are not out there, folks that are in here, folks that we know, maybe folks that are us. And that confusion, that struggle, I believe, is a real struggle and a real confusion. It's not something that people are making up. There should be a compassion towards those who are experiencing this form of a broken story. Like all of us do. All of us have broken relationships and broken perspectives. The first response when it comes to anyone who is struggling is to give compassion, to receive them, to help as much as we can. We need compassion. 
but we also need clarity. Clarity that this is the way that God made us to be. It's displayed for us in His Word, and here, at least, biology and psychology and, and Bible and history have some form of agreement. As it is biologically true that there are male and female. It is psychologically true. Increasingly, some folks say that's not true, but if you look at the psychological literature, it says primarily that there are male and female ways of relating in the world. And history. All societies throughout history have acknowledged this. And our, our species, so to speak, has continued because of that reality. Male and female. We need compassion and clarity. We're told that we have value and that we have a unique identity. Thirdly, this morning and finally, we have unique human callings. We're told how to be in this world. Something that we'll look at more closely next week as we see that we're called to work and to rest. We have some essential human callings. Two of them are mentioned in this passage. Number one is dominion. Dominion. Verse 26 says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We're told that we have plants for food, that we are to use the plants for our benefit. We have dominion. What does that mean? It means that we have rule, that we are God's chosen kings and queens, His vice regents over this creation. We are in second place to His authority, at least in our original design. Somebody might say, what about the angels? Aren't angels more powerful than human beings? Don't they come second? We read Psalm 8 at the beginning of, of today's worship service, which tells us that for a little while, you've made man lower than the angels. But the little while implies that that's not always going to be the case. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells us that, will we not, do you not know that we will judge angels? Just like in Narnia, there are kings and queens, and they rule the earth. God is the king of kings. Aslan still roams around. He does what he pleases. This is his world. But he still has those who sit on thrones. His kingdom is a kingdom of kingdoms, of dominion. Importantly, here, it's not domination. Not domination. We're not given authority to expend creation, to destroy it, to use it only for our advantages, to use it unwisely. But neither is it true that we're passive in creation and, and, and told to just submit to whatever uh, forces there are out there. We're told, like all wise and godly wisdom, uh, uh, wise and godly rule, is that we should have a, a balance of... of um, Demand and service. Use without abuse. We have dominion. Secondly, we, have, we are called to fruitfulness. 
Verse 28 tells us, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Fruitfulness. In fact, you could say, God blessed them in order to say to them. That was the blessing. The blessing that God gives is the blessing to be fruitful. To fill the earth. And that is an act as the image of God because this is very God-like. God filled the earth with things. And He calls us to do the same, to fill the earth with life by having babies. This, I'm thankful to say, is a command that New Valley families are taking very seriously. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Eleven on the way. Keep adding. Two, two born, nine on the way, I should say. To fill the earth is our call. It's our unique human calling to fill God's earth. And here is another place where we seem to think that we can see farther than we can. That we can have total control over the reproductive process. That we can, can actually be strong enough to overpopulate the earth. That theory has been debunked many times over by now, if you didn't know. Nobody's really concerned about overpopulation anymore, not seriously. In fact, in many parts of the world, it's the opposite. And so we give ourselves a headache by saying, we can see the future, we can know that we should slow down our population, but no, we can't. We, we try to see too far. We've just been faithful to God's command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have children, Fill this world with life that acknowledges God. Now here's another place, of course, just like with gender, that we have to say this is, this is a hard, it's hard because we're broken here. The image of God is marred and not everyone is able to have children. And then with every one of these things, every one of these unique things that God gives us, the image of God is so broken and cracked and it seems like it's not going to be possible to 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 act as the way that God wants us to act, to live as the human beings that He wants us to be. It's deeply broken. It's deeply marred by, by just outside things. Sometimes we don't control whether we can have children or not. We can't control how we're experiencing the world and our gender and all the dysphoria that's going on inside. There's things that, that are broken in the, in the system, but there's also things that are broken in us. And we know that we don't represent God well If it's true to be a human being means that we represent God to the world, we see how far we fall short of that. We also believe that there is someone who restores and redeems and polishes that image of God. It is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 tells us He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. How can we restore our broken image and get back to that place that God created us to be? How can we, so to speak, put on contact lenses and have our vision restored back to the way that it should be? The way that we do that is only through Jesus Christ. We find ourselves in Him, and in Him, if we're united with Him, then we have a restored image. 
All of the broken things about our image are restored back to the way they should be. I love 1 John chapter 3, which tells us this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. What will it be like to be a real human being? To be as God made us to be. I love John says, I don't know fully. It's like, it's just out there. But I know that when I see him, I'll be like he is. And I'll be restored. We don't know what it would be like for us to actually sit on the thrones prepared for us and to rule over the different dominions that God has given us with perfection. But it is out there and we can dream and we can imagine and we can find ourselves in Christ and look forward to His coming because when He comes, that's when we will know for certain what it is that God made us to be. Let's pray.